0: is Gabriel Stelian shanks I'm the Artistic Director of the Drama League and welcome to In Conversation. This is our digital video series and podcast series where we sit down with some of the most exciting and influential directors working in the American theater. If you want to see more episodes, visit us at dramaleague.org. You can just click on digital series or if you'd prefer a podcast, just search for the Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. Um, We are recording this in May 2020, right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am really excited to tell you that all of the artists who are participating in this series are donating their talent and time to help us raise funds for the Director's Emergency Relief Fund. Um, This is a fund that is helping stage directors and their families who are suffering um, either from healthcare or loss of work during the pandemic. Um, If you would like to join, me and all of these incredible artists and supporting them, feel free to click on dramalead.org. You can hit our donate button and we would love to have your support in this work. If you are a director who is suffering, also visit our COVID-19 resources for directors there. We have dozens of grants, opportunities, healthcare services, all kinds of things there to help you get through this time. I am really excited today to sit down with my friend Cheryl Collar. Um, when I think about Cheryl's work, I think she is one of the master storytellers of our time, but that that's something we say about a lot of directors. Um, when I sat down in shows like Mothers and Sons or, or Next Fall, there was such a visceral sense of the human bodies on the stage. Um, these were people wrestling with big things in ways that speak directly inside something that makes us human. Um, Going to her plays feels like a five-course meal. It feels so satisfying to see a Cheryl Collar production. So I'm really excited to ask her how she does that. Um, Hi Cheryl, welcome.
1: Hi, Gabriel. Thank you so much for having me. And before we start talking about me, I just want to thank you and everybody at the Drama League for everything that you do. And not only the physical help that you're giving everybody, just keeping hope alive and and just everything about keeping live theater in the zeitgeist. So thank you very much.
0: It feels like this is taking a lifetime, but we're actually going to be back soon. We and are. so this series is part of figuring out how we get back um so thank you for being here we really appreciate it how are you where are you how's the how's the pandemic going
1: well the pandemic is going uh, i'm i'm grateful that everybody in my family um and friends are healthy and those who weren't healthy are healthy now and i am on the uh, upper west side of manhattan i'm on 106 in west Dandav, and west end ave and We're doing okay. I I mean, to say that it hasn't been challenging would be a lie. And in the scheme of things, I feel very fortunate to have just closed a show. We got shut down three days before I started rehearsal for a show. And we had wonderful producers, uh, Ruth and Steve Handel and George Street Playhouse, who, Finish building the set. So the set is in storage and we have dates for next March. And yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And, and so I feel happy, scared, and blessed.
0: Shout out to Ruth Hendel, who I know, and shout out to George Street, where I used to work. Thank you, David, for building that set and getting us back there.
1: Yeah, they really, they, they put a priority in keeping the people who were building the set employed until the set was done, and then George Street and the Hendels took the responsibility of storing it for a year at this point, so I can't say enough about both,
0: all of them. Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to talk about that and your work on Broadway and all across the country and everything you do, but I think... For a podcast and video series about directing, the place I want to start is your journey because so many people think directing is just a climb straight up to uh, whatever level you reach. And your story uh, refutes that falsehood. I think it's a myth. I don't think it's true of many directors. But you had a point in your career where you stepped away from directing. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd love if you're willing for you to share your journey, how you, how you came to be a director and what that step away was and what it was like to come back.
1: Uh, well, th- those are all great questions. So I think I became a director when in my senior, I was a senior in high school and I was playing Rosie and Bye Bye Birdie and the English teacher, Linda Murtaugh, if you're out there, props to you, Linda, um, really blew the telephone hour she just missed it and I asked her if I could do it and stage it and and she said sure and I had the best time staging the telephone hour and getting into like you know what the Har- what Harvey was thinking and what this one is feeling and so I kind of finished Rosie which I was not very good either and <laughs> I decided I want to do that So I went to Emerson College and I was uh, at the time there was a directing major at at, at Emerson for undergrads, which there isn't anymore. There are not a lot of undergrad directing departments anymore either. And I had the privilege of just directing and directing and directing and directing. It, it, it's, it's not a conservatory program. It's a liberal arts program. So there were student organizations and, um, and I got very, very lucky and I moved home because I'm from New York. And um, my mom would take me once a month on a mental health day. She called it a mental health day. And it was every Wednesday, she would take me to a matinee. Every one Wednesday a month, she would take me to a Broadway matinee. So Broadway was always my goal and my dream. I I feel it's important to say that it's. I don't think Broadway is the be-all and end-all. I think that people tell stories everywhere. I was raised here. I came home. I had a support system here. New York City was my city. So it, it, it was a natural progression for me to come here. I did okay, not, you know, I stage managed. I came up as a stage manager. I I was the PSM of the national tour of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and was out on the road for 14 months. And then my mom died unexpectedly. And then I had a baby a year later, another baby two years later. And then a year after that, my dad died unexpectedly. And I said completely irrationally, but very consciously, I need to stay home with my children because if I die young, I want my time with them. And I was fortunate in that my husband has always made a living so that my income, we were never and have never been dependent on my income. And I took... Well, today I'll say I took 10 years off, some days I say I took 12 years off, some days I say I took nine years off, but in that area, I took that time off. I started a theater company in Bermuda with some friends, Uh, so, uh, and we had, we were the first theater company, I think, to provide childcare for people, to provide partners, plane tickets, We, we tried to humanize theater, and then I, wrote to Joanna Felzer at New York stage and film. I was ready to come back and I wrote to Joanna Felzer or called her, there was no email then, or um, once a week for six months until she took my phone call. And I had a play and last summer would have been my 18th summer there. Uh, And, and that she gave me my break and I came back and I was basically told as a female director, particularly, well, you're 41 years old and you're never going to do it. And, you know, you should just manage your expectations. And I made my Broadway debut with Next Fall at 49. And I got to go to that good old Tony party at 49 and a half. And, (laughs) uh, and, and, and that's, uh, that's kind of how it went.
0: I think, uh, so I want to unpack a lot of the things you talked about, (laughs) because there are things we don't talk about in the field very much. The fact that primarily female directors have to choose to have children or have a career. That has been the path. Um, And that women are asked to um, create alternative avenues of finding work. I mean, Johanna is one of the great artistic directors and she's now gonna run Berkeley Rep and I'm so excited about that and um, but I it is uh, without you sort of creating that pathway um, you know we might not have ever benefited nationally from your career it's her investments that really work you have been quoted and I uh, and always when we find things in our research I want to make sure it's true uh, that your, you feel your work and your career has been marginalized for being a woman.
1: Um,
0: yes. Is that true? And then, so, so if we can speak to that marginalization, how have you combated working in a field that is overwhelmingly dominated by men um, and despite recent advances is, is still overwhelmingly dominated by men?
1: Well, I feel like i have I do feel that my career has been marginalized, and I feel like I have had such supporters, um, very much including men uh and so I think the way it's been marginalized is I directed Next Fall, it got all this attention, I got the nomination, and I still had to talk, and my agent, which is a privilege as well, and my agent and people still had to talk people into the fact that I knew how to do musicals, where I do feel that if a man directs a play, they're given all this opportunity to direct, they're not pigeonholed. So I think that's where my career as a woman has been marginalized, that we're asked to stay in our lane. And I think that, all female artists can say that. I think that that is just um, something that happens. On a day-to-day basis, I didn't feel sexism. I didn't feel disrespected. I felt uh, valued. I felt uh, it it was more that being asked, oh, she does those plays really well. And until I met a woman by the name of Donna Harrell at a wedding, ironically enough, I met her at a mutual friend's wedding and Donna hired me to do frozen on the Disney cruise line. And it was to great success. Then people said, Oh, now we know she can do musicals. So I think that's where the marginalization, I also do feel we as women are marginalized with Mm -hmm. children. I think the crazy statistic of my career is more about that I'm gonna miss, it's probably not the right number, but I'm gonna say I was within the first five to seven people with a child to be nominated as a woman. I I do think and I think that friends and directing and Joanna Felser, Joanna Felser, Joanna Felser. I mean, I slept, you can't believe what I took out of my Ford expedition, my first summer up there. And and it was never a question of we have room for your children, we will help you find camps for your children. She would let us, it was Cotter Smith, Jay Sanders, Marianne Plunkett, Melissa um, Leo. We all had kids. She let us break every day at three o'clock to go pick up our kids from camp. Our play had a lot of profanity in it. She supported us inviting our kids in. And every time the F word was said, she let us say the word fun. And she let us devote rehearsal to including our families. She So I cannot say enough oh. about what she did and how. So to me, I was used to saying, well, can I have an extra bedroom for my kids? Or, you know, this is uh, Toby's dance recital is, so I can't rehearse this day. And so she allowed me to start off my career somewhat demanding of including my, you know, art and life have to coalesce somehow. And she was incredible, and Barbara Manacharian, who produced Next Fall, we, our kids were, were, you know, running concessions, doing their homework, you know, um, I mentioned Ruth and Steve Hendel, um, Terrence McNally and Tom Curtehy, my kids were always welcome, my kids, so I, I had a, so, so to say that I was marginalized, yes. And yet mm-hmm. the abundance of people who l- supported me and supported my family and supported the way that I've chosen to have a career has my, my cup runneth over in that way.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, what's astonishing listening to you talk about it is that we, uh, how rare in our field, some of the things you are talking about. Um, that kind of family forward rehearsal space or production model is n- for people who aren't in our business, they should know that is nowhere near the norm.
1: No, it isn't. Um,
0: but also as you talk about it, none of those things are especially hard for our institutions to do if the will is there. And so maybe there's something really instructive about how we all figure out how to, uh, accommodate these things that, you know, it isn't hard to figure out how to have everyone incorporate a family-friendly environment in the spaces you're talking about.
1: It isn't, and also I do think that, you know, speaking of like actors' equity and, um, you know, the, the, the rehearsal hours, I also think on a circumstance-by-circumstance basis, they would also be very open to say, well, if you have a group of people, including actors, who need to go pick, who'd like to pick up their kids from school, you know, I'm hoping that post-pandemic, we're all going to, there was a New York Times op-ed that said, the virus isn't our enemy, it's who we become, who we, what people we are. That is the, you you, you know, let's institute change. And I'm excited to be going into my act Three, whatever that means, and advocate. Uh, Lauren Lotaro and uh, Kathleen Marshall put together this fabulous group of people at the SDC to talk about traveling with children and nursing rooms. And it, it, you know, Rachel Chafkin was pregnant at the time, and it. I think the conversations are really starting. And as a director, we can't really. We're we're not working eight hours a day. I mean, we're you know we're putting in fourteen hours a day. On a good day. So I also think the more we can support each other and the more that we talk about it, I agree. I believe uh, the public is doing great things. Uh, The roundabout um, is extraordinary. I mean, there were a whole group of people who were nursing babies during one of their last Laura Pell show and Todd and Jill and Scott. I mean, so I do think we have to maybe not demand, but just talk about it. So, because I, I also think it's sort of like an underground thing yeah. that people don't think they can talk about.
0: Right, right. I agree with you completely. I, uh, also, what you said about um, the virus and learning from it. I, I watched Peter Sellers at, uh, in the Siegel Center talks last week uh, describe the pandemic as our teacher. Yes, Um, And that this is a moment where we need to stop, listen, and learn um, better ways of doing things. That's right.
1: And particularly with our schedules, you know, there are very, there, we are, our riches are abundant if, if you get as lucky as I am, truly. Um, And, and also we're still asked to rehearse work six out of seven days a week. Where tech is 10 out of 12 hours a day. It's not a very, and now we're going to go through minimally an eight month period where we're having dinner with our families every night. What, how is that going to make us better?
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you just said that uh, there were a lot of people who tried to put you in a, in a specific lane. And the next question I have for you is me putting you in a lane. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when I think of you, I think of you as a generator and as a director of new work. Would that be fair? I
1: only do new work. I've only done um, three plays that have been produced before in my whole career. I directed a production of Barefoot in the Park, when Jed Bernstein was reopening uh, Bucks County Playhouse, and that yeah. and it started at Bucks County Playhouse, and my mother was a Neil Simon freak, so that was my homage to my mother. Um, I directed a new translation of Our Town with Deaf West Theater and Pasadena Playhouse because my friend Danny Feldman took over Pasadena Playhouse and he said, what do you wanna do? And Our Town is my all time favorite play and Deaf West Theater Company slays me. So um, that was sort of new and sort of old cause it was a new translation. And then um, Bucks County, Robin and Alex and Josh asked Chris Durang to play the David Hyde Pierce role in Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. And Chris said, I only want Cheryl to direct it. So how could you turn that down? And then the rest have only been new plays and musicals. And I love being in that lane. I love working with playwrights. I love rewrites. I love the uh, malleability of, of new plays and musicals. Love.
0: I think that love comes through when I watch your work Mm -hmm. in the intro I talked about the feeling I have at your work that there's a complexity to the human condition not only inside the text of the plays you're working in but the way that you bring them to life and it and I guess my question I always wonder what other directors rehearsal rooms are like (laughs) Um, because it seems like you must have this mix of like exploration and joy and and then a deep focus into that and like what's your room like how do you create these things um
1: thank you for asking that i feel like the the constant in my rooms is collaboration i again i i want to keep overusing this word on purpose i've had the privilege of working with some of the greatest artists in our business and one of the biggest things that I learned very early on is it does no one, particularly the play and the production, wanting to be the smartest person in the room. So Uta Hagen once said that, uh, she, said in her, she says in her book, Respect for Acting, uh, acting is 95% listening. And I've transcended that to directing. I learned... So much from every per. I mean, how could you be in a room with Tyne Daly, with Patrick Breen, with uh, Maddie Corman, with uh, I could go on, Bobby Steggert, Fred Weller, you you know, on and on and on. Mario Cantona and I just worked together um, and not listen. So I listen a lot, and then for me, it is what are the playwright's intentions? What my job is to say I'm not getting that do you want to know suggestions ha- as to how i could get that um it's a, a great terrence mcnally story as i was working when we were doing mothers and sons at bucks county and it was uh bobby Steggert and mono falciano and tyne and we were working on a scene and i was nervous it, it was terrence mcnally so and i couldn't get the scene to work and you know I, i'm i'm working and working and um for those of you who don't know terrence was um a, a, opera fanatic. And um, he would sit in the corner of our rehearsal room with headsets in rewriting while he was listening to opera. And so I'm working on the scene and working on the scene and all of a sudden Terrence says really loudly, Cheryl. I was like, oh my God, I'm, um, uh, you know, you know that moment that we all have where, oh God, everyone's going to find out this is not real. And you know, they're going to tell me I stink or something. And then I walk over to the table and I said, yeah. And he said, ah, you're you're really good at what you do. You're working too hard at this. Let me take it back and let me work on it a little bit and go on to the next thing. Well, boy, oh boy, that was pretty far on in my career. I had, you know, I was on the other side of my Broadway debut. I had worked with some really great playwrights and Terrence McNally just showing that kind of power in his humility uh, was Will always remain with me. And when we were doing Mothers and Sons, Terrence, Tom Courtey, our producer and Terrence's husband, every Monday, every day off, we would go page by page in that script and say, that's yours. That's mine. That's the actors. That's the design. That's the, and that's how you're great. That's how you're great. And so I say collaboration, humility, knowing when to say yes, knowing when to say no. Um, No, I use very sparingly. And yet my mother also taught me no is a complete sentence. So when you say no, it needs to be paid attention to as well. So for me, collaboration, listening, and not having to be the smartest person in the room, but also needing to have a command of the room while not having to be the smartest person in the room
0: cheryl you've worked with so many amazing people and you're talking about a bunch of them and you just brought up terrence and i you know i should probably share at this point that terrence and tom introduced you and i um and terrence and tom have been friends of ours for a very long time and uh losing terrence recently i spent a lot of time i actually reread Every single one of his plays um, in the last few months. That's that's one of my coronavirus activities. And and even the the plays I didn't know by him. I've, I've just been on a search and and read so much of his work. Um, that humility that you're talking about, I think for me was always coupled with a generosity. I never met someone of his accomplishment and ability who was kinder to, I would watch him be nice to the intern. Um, You know, do you have any stories that you can share with us about Terrence? Oh,
1: so many stories that I can share about Terrence. And I'm sorry for all of our loss. It is a huge loss not to have him here with us anymore and he will remain forever because of what he has left behind. Um, I mean, Terrence, Tom, and I had a very—I thought at the time—a very, you, you know, individual collaboration, and the, and we did, of course. Um, but the more I hear, I taught a class for Ithaca College the other night, um, and the kids told me that Terrence wrote them when they were doing ragtime. Um, I, my right now, I'm living in the place of how much he and Tom taught me about love and about Mm -hmm. respect and about working together and living together and, Being each other's biggest supporter and the rigor that it takes to be as great, and the honesty that it takes to be as great. And they were a day to day inspiration to me. And then you talk about the kindness. They had a dog, Terry the Terrier. Tom had Terry before he met Terrence. So he's not named out, he wasn't named after Terrence. And my first tech with Terrence, which was on Mothers and Sons. I got to watch Terry the Terrier, because Terrence doesn't really get, he doesn't spend a lot of time, and he'll come and say a word, uh, or three, a pearl, he'll give you a pearl or three, and then, you know, you get your notes during previews, you get your notes, you you know, he really, he is, he was a man of the theater, he respected everyone who walked through that door, and gave everyone a chance to do their job everyone a chance tom too tom just gave everyone a chance never we were never cut off at the knees so there i was with terry the terrier in tech and there was a back door that opened and terry would just run out the back door and i would say and i would say oh my god terry's going to go into the delaware river this is horrible and so my whole first tech of terrence's was thinking that i was going to lose his and tom's dog He loved that dog. He loved Terry the Terrier. Both he and Tom just loved Terry the Terrier. I, we would have to talk for eight hundred hours, truly, about everything that Terrence and Tom have brought into my life and have taught me. And they remain to be friends like you, you know. And um, I, I also, Terrence taught me not to be afraid. Uh, Terrence woke up every single morning of his life and wrote. And um, I, I say that he dove off the high board every single day. And that was a big lesson for me from Terence.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Um,
0: um, I'm gonna, uh, cause I'm getting emotional. I'm gonna uh, move to some people I, I don't know as well as you do, um, but that I think people would love to hear what it's like to work with them. And uh, early in your career, Chris Durang had a, spe- uh, a very special place in your heart and life.
1: <laughs> um, that was like my first big gig, Gabriel. Like I would say like that was like, you know, I had done some stuff at New York Stage and Film to some great artistic fulfillment, you know, what stage and film is about. and. I decided I wanted to do, you know, I always did musicals. I always loved musicals. So again, in my tenacious way, and I want everyone to hear this. I, you, You have to do this. I know that email and Twitter and Instagram, I called... Jim Morgan from the York Theatre Company, because I got, it, it just made sense to me that that was a play that a new artist could work at. He was giving people chances, and the day that I called him was the same day that Chris Durang's agent sent him a nine-page treatment for a new musical that Chris Durang and Peter Melnick, Richard Rodgers' other grandson, were writing together. And because I called that day, Jim Morgan said, would you like to meet Chris Durang? And I met Chris Durang at the Lincoln Square Coffee Shop. That's not there anymore. And I, I was living in Jersey at the time. So after the meeting, uh, well, first he called and his number came up, 610-294-8036, and <laughs> on my caller ID in New Jersey. And I couldn't answer it. I was so, I couldn't believe that Chris Durang was calling me. So I called him back. I <laughs> couldn't answer the phone. Um, and I got the job. I got the job, I, 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 and I, and I don't know why, I don't, Chris and I clicked, uh, Wendy Wasserstein was sick at the time, so I think I kind of, you know, was this little bit larger than life Jewish woman as well, and, you know, T- T- Terrence's relation, you know, and then I look at who I've worked with, and so many had paths to Wendy Wasserstein too, which I consider so incredible, and, I got to direct a musical called Adrift in Macau. Uh, Which I loved. It was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. I loved it too. I don't think the critics really wanted to see Chris Durang as playful. They like him biting and playful. You know, they didn't want to see him as play. The Philly critics did. I don't read reviews either. I don't read any reviews, but you can kind of tell how the party goes with <laughs> based on what the reviews are like. But truly it was at the very beginning of my career and I was insecure and so i used to get off two subway stops early to buoy myself in order to be able to have a voice in that room because i knew i knew what i was doing i just thought that chris knew more than me which he did but i knew that i wasn't doing him or the play or the actors any favors if I didn't come in with a strong vision and if I didn't come in with strong opinions. And I used to have to take the subway two stops earlier to, t- to talk myself into getting through the fear and the intimidation of which Chris never did. It was me putting it on myself. And I feel like that's a really important it doesn't make us less than because we're afraid. It's what we do with the fear. It's what we do with owning our place in the room. And also, it was pretty early on with women, female directors too. It was, that was, there weren't a lot of us then.
0: Listen, it's 2020 and I still don't need all of my fingers and all of my toes to count the women who have directed on Broadway ever. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's insane. Um, But I, you know, Whatever fear you were feeling in that process, the production didn't have it. Uh, it, I mean, it's a deeply genre piece if you don't know it. I really encourage everyone to go listen to it. Um, it, If I'm right, Orville Mendoza was in that, right?
1: Orville Mendoza was in it, and Chris wrote book and lyrics. And the whole show opened with a woman named Lorena in a purple dress that Willa Kim, may she rest in peace, designed and The lyric was, in a foreign city in a slinky dress, I've just arrived from somewhere, my hair is quite a mess, I've lost my lover Billy, unlucky me I guess, because I'm in a foreign city in a slinky dress. Oh. If that's not Durang, I don't know what is.
0: <laughs> well, and, and just, I hope other people do it. I'd love for that piece to get revived. It's it's joy on stage. So, oh, so I would love to you. see a
1: production of that. I would love, it, w- it was pure joy. We did New York Stage and Film, Philadelphia Theater Company, and then Primary Stages. And um, I ha- it doesn't get done very often either. No, me.
0: and it should. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. Adrift in Macau, that's, that's the note for today. Um, Well, and then I also want to talk to you about, you're working, I think currently, on work with the great Billy Porter.
1: Ah, The great Billy Porter.
0: And when I think of Terrence McNally, Chris Durang, and Billy Porter, these are not artists that are like one another in any way. (laughs) So, what's exciting about the collaboration with Billy?
1: Well... Let's start off by saying that, how about Billy Porter now, right? Talk about staying in there and staying in the game right. and, and and just just w- just showing up every day doing the very best you can and look what can come to you. and not only the fame, which is terrific and which is terrific and couldn't happen to a better and more decent person than Billy, but the actually being able to do his art in a way that black gay men were so pigeonholed for so many years. And he's really, he talk about paving the way for uh, where we're going is amazing. So uh, working with Billy is glorious. He's generous, he's gracious, he's so smart. Um, I work almost blank page with Billy. We, the first collaboration of ours, he had a play that was four acts, like eight million pages, and we just rolled up our sleeves and got into it. And Billy is musical, so I always use um, a musical's uh, structure to help Billy. Uh, to to guide the architecture of the play. So While I Yet Live, which we did at the Duke with Primary Stages, was Gypsy. We literally used the same structure as Gypsy and put it right up. Yeah, and that's the way Billy thinks in a musicality. So does Terrence. Um, That's where they're very similar. They both are very, they they both musical in what they think. Billy has... um, (laughs) he's the kindest man and he has the littlest amount of patience for actors finding their way. It's like, Cheryl, just tell him to do it this way. Boo. Come on. Come on. You know, (laughs) uh, because he's, he's really freaking smart and he gets there quickly. Um, and Billy is, uh, maturing. I just read, Billy just wrote a TV pilot that is through the roof amazing and brilliant and he is maturing as a writer and he also the other thing about Billy he's a brilliant director so getting directing notes from him were you know just were amazing I mean so again going like switching back to our first conversation um, just listening in the room with Billy. Um, and then also going back to our conversation about family, my daughter, my younger daughter was in Korea and we realized in the middle of a conversation that she had never seen Kinky Boots. And the next day she had an Aethro Center orchestra ticket to go see him in Kinky Boots. And he's like, and I was nervous. I don't know why I was nervous, but I was nervous. <laughs> um, so Billy Billy is a quadruple quintuple threat and that. It, Jeff Knopfs too next fall. Jeff Knopfs is a great actor, he's a great director. I think I just learned and from people who knew how to do a lot. Yeah. So exactly. the boundaries were there were way more wings than there were boundaries.
0: Oh, that's a great way to put that.
1: Yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Who is who have you not worked with that? you would love to, who are your dream collaborators that you haven't worked with yet? Who are you dying to work with?
1: I would, I would love to direct a Wendy Wasserstein play. Like talk about like, you know, me with new plays. I would love to direct a Wendy Wasserstein play. I believe that the lens in which, since Wendy hasn't been here with us has changed so much with, for women, for women, by women, uh, that I would be so interested in seeing what this time passage. So like, even so it, like, it would be, it, it would be a revival of course, cause she's not rewriting needless to say but to me it would just it would it's so fertile her work is so fertile for i remember uh, what i said to terrence about going when i saw michael shannon and audra do that beaut- the, the most recent revival of frankie and johnny frankie and johnny is why i do theater i can't, went to go see the original production of frankie and johnny and i saw kathy bates on that stage and i naked and i went that's the kind of theater I want to do. That honesty, that nakedness, that, and Kathy at the time was not thin by any stretch of the imagination. And it was, ju- Terence wrote this play. And I remember, and I remember saying to Terence after seeing this Frankie and Johnny, this last one, and I said, Frankie and Johnny just ages without even you oh. writing a new word. Absolutely. And it
0: stays so alive
1: alive. And that's what I would love to work with Wendy Wasserstein w- with her words. I would love to work with Wendy Wasserstein. I, um, there are a lot, Harrison Rivers is this, uh, he just won this big award this year. I don't know what, I, I, Harrison, forgive me. I don't know what the award was. Harrison is a playwright. The
0: relentless award. Yes. yes Harrison.
1: Yay. Um, Harrison is someone that I would love to work with. Harrison has a lot to say, a lot, a lot, a lot to say. Beautiful, beautiful, young, brilliant writer. Uh, and I'm, sh- I'm also lucky because I'm represented by an agent uh, named Michael Finkel, who also he he's always out there looking for new artists, looking for even older. Like, I was way older when I you know, went with Michael Finkel, uh, at, uh, it was right post Mothers and Sons. Um, so he's always introducing me to new people like um, uh, Selena, uh, uh, she it, it, she just did the, the uh, uh, underground play. She just did one of the underground plays, just brilliant. So a lot of people I would love to work with. <laughs>
0: Well, for any producers within the sound of our voices, listening to this, um, you, wanna, you wanna pitch a Wasserstein? Is there one you wanna do?
1: Uh, I would love to do Sisters Rosenzweig. Sisters Rosenzweig sits so close to my heart. Uh, again, I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in a Jewish family on Long Island. I grew up uh, wanting to be all three of those sisters like, it, 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 you know, um, it, it's a very personal play. And I saw it at the very beginning of Broadway Cares. Uh, and Wendy came out on stage, right, coming right from her Passover Seder, uh, uh, asking for money for Broadway Cares. And I was like, oh my God, she was dressed from her Passover Seder. I, I, so I would say, sister, I would direct to any of them, Sisters, Rosenzweig. Third is also a great play, I love that play.
0: Great, underrated. Oh my
1: God, I love, and Jason Ritter, remember? Jason Ritter was in that play, yeah.
0: But I think you're right about Sisters, Rosenzweig, like it would just, in in the moment we're in, um, all of and I feel this about all of Wendy's work, uh, like there's been a period where we haven't had any major productions of her work, and in that time, um, the the identity, the role, the possibilities for women have, have so radically altered in the public space that I think her plays would just crackle right now if someone would do them. You know? Right,
1: and Wendy was also so, I didn't really, I, I mean, I met her once or, or twice, but only know her through Chris. And Terrence speaking about her as much as they did. And so that would also be like a full circle thing for me too, because here was yeah. this woman that both Chris and Terrence loved and valued and just revered. And so also, I feel like me directing Chris's work and Terence's work, I could put that into her work as yeah. well. It would be very fertile for me in that way.
0: Okay, we're putting that out in the universe. Thank you. Directing Rosen's Um, So we're about out of time. So I just want to ask you, uh, I'm asking all the directors in this series, actually, um, one last question. I would love for you to think back to that undergrad directing for Cheryl Collar. Um, and if there is anything looking back at her that you could say to her, a piece of advice, something you know now that, boy, you wish she had known then what would that piece of advice to your younger self be?
1: That you don't have to prove yourself all the time, that art is powerful enough and you don't have to be the most liked and proving that you're worthy, that um, the journey that I have taken and you speaking about next fall and Mothers and Sons and Adrift in Macau, that way just is what makes me me. That's uh, my heart and my soul and my brains and my body are up on that stage. And I wish that I would have known that then. Like I know now that art was as powerful. I always knew I was passionate about it. I didn't trust that that transcended
0: to other people. Hmm. Great advice. Cheryl Collar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
1: Thank you again. And thank you for all that you do and valuing us all as much as you do. Thank you.
0: Great. See you soon.
1: See you soon.